Welcome, everyone, to the Change Starts Here podcast. I'm your host, Dustin Odom. And in this week's episode, we welcome Superintendent Kathy Moore. Kathy Moore is the 10th superintendent of the Wake County Public Schools, which if, you've, if you're not familiar with them, it's the 15th largest school district in America with about 160,000 students and almost 20,000 employees. This conversation was really great. I mean, first off, uh, finding out about her background uh, in terms of immigrating to America with her family at age two and how that's played to her belief in education was a really cool piece of conversation. She's also the first French teacher that I've ever met who became went on to become superintendent. And so we dive in a little bit about how that happened. She is a fierce advocate for her school leaders, for her teachers, and for her families in the community. And she believes that every student has genius and every student can grow academically. And that's their focus all the time. So we dive into how they do that as a district and what that means for her leadership. And then ultimately, if you can imagine, not many of us have access to a, a district or we've not worked in a district that has 160,000 students. So one of the uh, things I wanted to know most about is how do you what are, what are keys to successful implementation of any initiative and in like some district-wide approach uh, in her community? So we dive into some really interesting points that she has around that. And so I just encourage you to take notes. I know a lot of you are kicking off the school year. Everybody should almost be there at this point. And so definitely be ready to dive in to learn about her paradigms of leadership, as well as the the way she thinks about successful district-wide implementation. She, she provided some really cool strategies there. So as always, if you haven't subscribed, please subscribe. If you have, thank you so much. We appreciate your support. As you're listening for yourself first, but secondly, for others, please feel free to share this with someone who you think needs to hear what uh, Superintendent Moore has to say to us. So again, thanks for listening. Enjoy this conversation. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for the invitation. So our, our first question that we got from a gentleman named Brad Montague that we love dearly uh, and we use at every podcast is, who are you and what do you love about what you do? So I'm going to give um, sort of a complicated answer to who I am, right? So I'm known as Kathy Kiros Moore, um, superintendent of the Wake County Public School System. Um, the name on my birth certificate, however, is Kathy Maria Fatima Kiros Zambrano. I was born in Guayaquil, Ecuador. And I think those things are important to kind of know also in terms of who I am, um, because uh, there's a, a dual culture, dual um, experience growing up in this country when I came as a two-year-old that really has influenced who I am, my leadership beliefs. Um, and, you know, I have been in the Wake County Public School System since 1988, um, as a beginning as a teacher and then moving through the ranks in different positions. I actually began my teaching career in another district for a couple of years before coming to Wake County, but I've been in Wake County since 88. Wow. So you, you started off as a French teacher, is that right? That's correct. So my role at Franklin Covey, I, I get, I'm blessed to host this podcast, which I really love. Uh, but most of my role is working with our K-12, uh, relationships across the country. And so uh, I've had a chance to work with a lot of really cool superintendents. And I don't know if I know of any that started as a high school French teacher. Would you say that's also true in your experience? Um, I'm not aware of any that's, that started out as a French teacher. I occasionally taught Spanish and I was actually certified in math, but did never do that. Um, yeah. that, is, that is an interesting thing that I really haven't pulled the thread on, but I've not come across anybody. Yeah, so I, I think, and I don't, I don't want to pull too many threads on you today, especially any that might be uncomfortable. But uh, I, 
you know, when I, when I think about uh, when my time in schools or my friends in times in schools, any, any of my friends who were drawn towards the foreign languages just fell in love and got lost in their subject matter. And so they never were thinking about anything else. How did you go from being <laughs> a French teacher to your different steps throughout your career and now you're superintendent of one of the largest districts in America? So um, I, I've always been someone who wanted to be really engaged at whatever level I was. So mm -hmm. even as a beginning teacher, I, I looked for and had opportunities to take on small leadership roles within a regular school community setting. Um, and those were exciting to me when I came to Wake County in 88, after a couple of years in the classroom here, um, I had the opportunity to take on a student teacher from a local university. And I thought that was a fabulous thing. And I wanted to share my craft, wanted to help build other teachers. So I had, I had been doing that for a couple of different um, folks over a couple of different years. And what I found was that when you have a student teacher, you have a lot of free time as a classroom teacher because um, eventually they're taking over your classroom. And so I would wander down to the main office and I would say, what do you need? What can I do? I mean, I couldn't just, they were doing all of it. They were doing the planning and the grading and the working in the classroom and I needed to give them their space. So I needed something to do. Um, so while I was in the office, I started getting engaged in these different tasks, you know, uh, assigning lockers, doing things with papers, getting ready for a year end exams, um, seeing the kind of work that happens in the office with the administrative team. And um, someone put a little piece of paper in my teacher mailbox um, announcing that the applications were being accepted for the North Carolina Principal Fellows Program. And there was a little note written on it said, have you ever thought about this? And it wasn't signed. Um, so it, it just sort of sparked an interest and I thought, wow, what is this? And so I checked out what is the North Carolina Principal Fellows Program. And there was a program that you could apply to that provides scholarship and internship over a course of two year period to get your administrative license. I applied, I received the scholarship, I became a principal fellow. Um, and then that's when I became an assistant principal. And uh, as an assistant principal, uh, you know, you really do whatever you're told <laughs> and you have your hands in a lot of things. So I, I can tell you that when I began as a teacher, I never even saw myself as, as a building level administrator. And when I became a building level administrator and after three years as an assistant principal, I became a principal in, in a high school. Um, you know, I spent 22 years in a high school, either as a teacher or an assistant principal or a principal. Oh. And never when I was an administrator, did I ever think about going to central office. <laughs> and so, again, um, uh, as a principal and working in, in, in teams and area groups with other principals and sort of the, like the professional learning team aspect of administrators, um, I found I had tremendous interest in uh, working with colleagues to make sure that all of us learned from each other. And eventually that led to a position as an area superintendent at central office. And I have to tell you, even as an area superintendent, I never thought about being a superintendent. <laughs> I don't think I even knew what a superintendent was when I began my teaching career. Right. So, um, you know, the, those different opportunities to engage with different stakeholder groups and work in different capacities um, really allowed me to grow. And I think that um, the opportunity and the timing were right when I became the superintendent here in 2018. Um, 
And I, I am invested in this district. I love this community. I've been in the community since I came here for college in 81 or 82. Wow. And so, um, you know, Raleigh is home. Wake County is home. Yeah, what I what I love about your story is I, I find, you know, the folks who listen to this podcast are educators mostly, but aspiring leaders. And, you know, I've talked to, when I was at my old district, talked to young leaders who had big aspirations. And one of my thoughts was always, do the job that you have now to your fullest ability and doors will open. Try to get to the next opportunity and you'll fail at this one and you'll never have it. Does that jive with you? Is that kind of how you give advice for career folks? It completely resonates with me. Um, I feel like in, 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 and maybe all professions are like this, but certainly in education, you must be both hands, both feet in whatever the job is that's before you. And I think the opportunity to grow with colleagues, to potentially lead colleagues and take on different leadership roles, in my case, has sprung from the work that I was doing in the current setting that I was in. And and I, and I didn't, I don't know how to work with an eye on what's next for me and yep. still be fully invested in what's in front of me. Um, and, and there are folks that I'm sure are able to maybe do that. But for me, it was really about being invested where you are, learning as much as you can, um, you know, growing your profession and growing with your colleagues. And, and what I found in my case was that those opportunities to other things did open up. Yep. So uh, you, you know, in my research, I didn't get the, you're from Ecuador and uh, have a unique background, which is awesome to dive into. And so I wasn't really ready for this question, but uh, how does that experience in your life impact your leadership today? Or how did it impact your leadership in the classroom, to your school, to your other district positions? I knew from an early age, when we came to this country, I was two years old. Um, we moved to New York City. And um, you know, my mother was a typical immigrant who um, did not speak a lot of English, um, worked sometimes outside the home, but was in the home a lot. But I knew from my mother's background, my stepfather's background, it was inculcated in me from an early age that in this country, there is opportunity. And that opportunity comes through how you engage in school and your education and that this wonderful free public education that is provided to any student in our schools was a gift and, and to be taken advantage of and would be the pathway to whatever it is that I may want to do in the future. I, I felt that from an early age. I believed it from an early age um, and I've always loved school. So um, my mother was not the kind of parent who went to parent-teacher conferences and was at school most of the time. She couldn't speak the language, didn't really um, know how to engage and have that capacity. But she, she did tell us how important school was and to respect our teachers and to do our work. Um, and so those kinds of habits were a part of how I grew up and the belief that through school, I could do anything. That's awesome. So when you think about one of the questions that I love to ask educators when I've got a big room of them across the country is who inspired you when you were a student? So whether it's elementary, middle, high, you can go back to any level of your education. Who in that building inspired you the most and why? And I'm curious when I ask you that, do you have a person in mind? And if so, I'm, I'm also curious how that person impacted you today and your superintendent role. 
So there's different folks at different times. And yeah. some of those experiences are very positive. And some of those experiences are, are not as positive. And, um, and they weren't all fully understood at the time. It right. is a lot of times through reflection and hindsight that you recognize how something has impacted you. Um, when, when I, I told you that I you know, grew up in New York City, we moved to North Carolina when I was about 10 years old. And um, when I came to North Carolina, we went to the local public school to enroll and I was a very quiet child. Um, I didn't really speak unless I was spoken to. Um, my parents didn't speak English very well. They certainly didn't know that you should have things like report cards and immunization records and other things with you when you enroll. And so um, I remember enrolling in school in a fifth grade classroom. And I remember over the course of the next few months being moved several times from one teacher to another teacher, at least three times. And I remember with stark clarity what happened the day before my final move during that first school year here. Um, we were in class and the teacher was putting math problems on the board and they were these long division with remainder problems. Don't know if you recall them, but you know, those things where you have that, you know, 8,656,223 divided by 1,722. Yep. And you could do that long train and you'd have a remainder out to the side. And so she put 10 of those on the board and she asked us to come check our answers when we were done. So I finished the problems at my desk. I went up to, my, to her desk to check my answers and she was not done solving them yet. The teacher was not done. So, you know, what I know that means now is that she didn't really have a lesson plan, right? Which yep. <laughs> you, can, you can throw those numbers up on the, on the board. Um, and, uh, and I got moved again the next day. And where I ended up getting moved to by the end of that school year was what was back then called SAT classes, which was special abilities and talents. Mm. What I realized when I was about 20 some years old was that I was initially placed in a, in a special needs classroom oh. with students who were academically behind, who weren't, uh, had you know, challenges performing. And a lot of that had to do because of a lack of knowledge of the school in how to place me. My yep. parents couldn't engage in the language. They didn't bring the proper paperwork. It took me, it, I was in my 20s before I figured this out, uh, that I sort of put all of those pieces together. And, and for me, what that has done is um, those experiences at an early age, and then those who through the course of my elementary um, in North Carolina, my middle school and my high school teachers, administrators, who believed in me, um, helped me you know, understand that I had worth, I had value, I had something to contribute. And um, so it was more the experience that was than it was individual people. Um, and, and I can tell you that in my leadership now, when I spoke to our district staff shortly after becoming superintendent, and I told them this story, I said to them, and and while I am proud of the work I have done, I understand that it's a combination of work ethic and luck and you know, people who may not have understood with others who wanted to build my capacity and support me, it was both. Um, but what keeps me up at night and drives me now is knowing that for the most part, the experience that I had where I worked out of those classes and eventually ended up in 
gifted classes was the exception, not the norm. And that is the problem. And so that what, drives me as a superintendent. That's interesting. So what, what uh, if you think about the priorities that you all have as a district right now, what, what are the things you're working on that are trying to fight that? Because there's no silver bullet. There's no easy answer. It's really complex. And so I don't want to set this up thinking, and you're going to tell me how we solve it. We're all trying to tackle it. So what are you trying to do to tackle that? So I, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about um, a couple of the core beliefs that anchor our strategic planning process. Okay. Our very first, first core belief states that um, every student is unique and capable and deserves to be engaged in rigorous, relevant, meaningful learning each day. And our second core belief says that every student is expected to grow and learn while we eliminate the ability to predict achievement based on socioeconomic status, race, or ethnicity. Those two core beliefs anchor the work in the district and very much reflect um, you know, some of the challenges that I had, some of the opportunities that I had and the experiences that I had that I see reflected um, in our classrooms, in our schools, in our students every day. So one of the things is I, I, I you know, think about the superintendent role, one of the challenges, and this, is, this goes from you being a teacher to an assistant principal, then assistant principal to principal. When, when educators start their career, most of them start as teachers and you're focused on students. Most of us got into education because we love students. We wanna see the bright future for them. But then you grow into a role where you're the principal, especially at a high school. Your job is more about the adults and the kids, I assume. And then you get to the district office and it's still caring about the kids, but your focus has to be, how do I train adults to train the, to teach the kids, love the kids? How, how hard was that for you to transition? And how do you, what's the best advice you have for leaders today as they're trying to transition into that effective mindset? So I have, to, I have to start by saying that I am a superintendent who misses being in the classroom every day. Yeah. And, and I'll also say that I, I think that's kind of the key. I think that when your progression through different leadership positions is either only about ambition or pay or what's the next step, and you don't remain really viscerally connected to the experience and the joy that you had for teaching, that you can lose sight of exactly who you're working for and why you're working as you move through those different roles. So for me, I'm a superintendent who misses being in the classroom every day. Uh, the very first day on the job, when as reporters were following me around, one of the things that I said to them is I recognize that the magic that we talk about in classrooms and schools does not happen in the superintendent's office. It happens in our 10,000 classrooms every day. And my job and my role is to make sure that our teachers and our students have everything they need, that our principals have what they need, that our parents and our community stakeholder groups can get their questions answered and their problems solved. And so I, I orient myself around how the work that we do supports those things. And I, and I tell the folks at central office and our principals have heard me say, and our teachers have heard me say that when central office and staff are working to support schools, if it doesn't feel like support, we got to know that. Mm. Um, because I think we can get caught up in the task that's in front of us and forget to look up and look out 
into the classroom, into our, our, our schools and see exactly what that impact is and get the feedback from the people who are doing the work every day. So my job, when I talk to little kids, I tell them that my job is to make sure you have everything you need. That's awesome. I love that philosophy. I remember uh, when we had, you remember around 2008, 2009, 2010, there were like the SIG grants, right? Transformation grants, turnaround grants. And that's when I was working in my district. And some of my principals called me one day saying, we've applied for all these title grants. We've not gotten anything. So I go to the title office and they say, oh, here's the stack of papers. They didn't dot this I or cross this T. And so I just let it be. And I'm like, we exist for them. They don't exist for us. And so uh, that's powerful in a big organization that you have. I'm sure that's hard sometimes to make sure it's running as smoothly as you expect. But I think by stating that expectation and living it out every day, that probably goes a long way to getting you there, doesn't it? It is a work in progress, um, yeah. certainly. And, and it is both frustrating and invigorating <laughs> when I get an email or a contact from a teacher saying right back at me what I've said to them, <laughs> yeah. because I think it holds us accountable. Um, and I think that's important. So when you give advice to high school principals, middle school principals, or elementary principals on uh, their role, right? So you just said, I miss being a teacher. So that's okay. So you, you want to find people who love teaching and love being a part of it. But you also have to recognize, like you said, your role is not that anymore. Right. So do you, do, you, do you try to instill the same thing that you think about? Your job is to clear the path for your yeah. teachers and students. So it, so it morphs a little bit when I'm working with administrators yeah. to... Also, a part of me miss be, missing being in a classroom every day, connected to it is missing being in a school every day. Hmm. I was surrounded by teenagers for 22 years. And I missed that because the community, the opportunity to build a strong community around specific objectives and goals and finding alignment and ownership with your children and your staff around the work that's important in a school is very important. And it's a, it's a unique opportunity to build that community. And there are a lot of stakeholders that are a part of it. Um, you know, I find it really interesting that when we poll our parents and folks in the community, the vast majority of them, all our surveys, over 90% love their schools, love their teachers, but don't necessarily love their district, yep. <laughs> right? And so I think that's something to think about also, how we communicate and have alignment that goes through the organization at different levels so that folks can be on the same page and to be accountable for when we're not. Yeah, it's like the old Congress, or probably still current Congress data is like, you love, you love your congressman, you hate Congress, right? So it's the same thing. It's like, all right, we love our school, we love our people, but you know this district, I don't know about this district thing. Right. Um, and to your point, communication is key, but it's tough to communicate consistently to everyone in a personal way to where they know that you're aligned, right? Right. Well, I think one of my other favorite sayings to folks is um, we have 160,000 students. We have almost 20,000 staff and about 11,000 uh, teachers. So how do you do that work in a district this large? And what I say to folks is one student at a time. Yep. which sounds like a, a, an impossible task and maybe a ridiculous ask, but it is still the work. Um, it is one student at a time. Can't forget that there's 160,000. Obviously we have policies, practices, procedures, and that sort of thing. But that does mean that communication and listening are incredibly important. Mm. Well, to that one student at a time philosophy, 
uh, you were recently honored for uh, being like national superintendent of the year by the magnet schools organization. And so um, I'm curious, what role do magnet schools play in your district and how, what kind of impact have you seen them have on your students uh, that have taken, you know, been a part of it? So when I came to Wake County in 1988, I actually was a French teacher at Enlo Magnet High School, which is our longest serving magnet high school program storied reputation in our district. Hmm. Um, so magnet schools in our district have served for many years as a choice for our families. And it is what one of our board members would call choice with a purpose. So when you look at the magnet schools of America philosophy and basic tenets of what magnet schools should do, um, magnet schools should promote voluntary desegregation in a district under the belief that integrated schools are better for students and communities, that we don't want segregated schools. And so it's a voluntary desegregation tool. Um, but in a bigger picture, it serves as a choice option for our families. And we have choices outside of magnet schools as well. But when families have choice, and that provides a different level of investment in the school that you're in. And when that choice achieves other objectives that are important to a community and a school district, then you're, you're winning on several fronts. And so for us, um, our magnet programs have allowed us to achieve a higher level of desegregation, um, of integration that we would have otherwise. Um, and, and, and so they have been important to our history and our community. When the Wake County public school system was formed, it was formed through the merger of the Raleigh City school system and the Wake County school system. And so they merged because um, it was important to the community at that time in the late 60s and early 70s that we not be um, in a position where the things that were happening in other parts of the country around forced uh, desegregation and the negative connotation and events that occurred in so many communities, um, our business community, our business leaders knew that integrated schools uh, were important to the business community and to the growth of Wake County as a whole. And wow. so magnet schools played a really big role in that and they continue to play that role today. So it, it's, a, it's morphed a little bit, it's different because Wake County has grown so much. Yeah. Um, transportation patterns are more difficult. The number of magnet schools certainly has changed and increased um, and the work to continue to create themes that are attractive, that draw families through choice is also different. Uh, because all schools try to do everything for everybody nowadays. Yeah, I've had we've had superintendents on this podcast who uh, have you know had the challenge of growth. We've had superintendents have this you know who face a challenge of closing schools and a shrinking population. Uh, what what are the biggest challenges that you guys are faced with? You just talked about a growing population. So if you want to go there, what is that leading to as challenges yeah. you guys are trying to tackle right now? So I think that um, what's happened in Wake is that the, the growth has ebbed a little bit from the 7,000 new students a year we had in the early 2000s, right? We were growing by around six to 7,000 students a year for several years in a row. How do you plan for that? You build um, a new school every like two schools a year or something? Well, there were years where we opened seven schools. Um, oh and I think this year we're opening four. So 
last, I think next year we don't open any perhaps. So, I mean, you know, it, it just, it's sort of the ebb and flow is now different in terms of, but we continue to need a building program. And in addition oh. to a building program, we have a community and commissioners who fund the school system. We do not have taxing authority. So we get our funds from our local funds from our county commissioners. Um, we, we not only have to focus on the areas of growth we have in the community, but we have a lot of aging schools that need renovation and revamping. And so our community has been very supportive of both. Um, our issue right now is that our growth is disparate. We have some parts of the county that are growing fast and other parts of the county that are not. We have regentrification happening in some of our downtown areas. And so we have all of those issues. We have a transportation system that has not caught up with the growth that we have. Um, so there's a lot of pressures on where our schools are and how crowded they are. Um, the tools that we implement to mitigate that disparate growth, which include multi-track year-round schools. And if you had an hour, I'd explain those to you, uh, but they do allow us to put an additional 25% of kids into a school beyond their capacity um, or capping schools where you may move into a community where you can't go to the school in that community because it's too crowded. So you have to go to a different one, um, not very popular, but necessary in a high growth area. Um, so I think that that has caused some pressure in our communities. Um, and so I think how we handle that disparate growth. And we've had years where we were down 100 students from the prior year, up 50 students from the prior year. And so it's, it's sort of ebbed and flowed, but, but that's the overall number for the district. We may have a region of the district that grew by 2000 and another region that lost 300, you know, that sort of thing. And so it's, it's very, um, it's a complicated sort of thing to have to deal with. And um, I think our community is, is sort of demanding better and more responses to how we deal with that. Um, and that puts a lot of pressure on our folks. And then the oh. general political climate right now in general and what's happening in school systems and school boards doesn't help. Yeah, not, not a chance. I was thinking, because usually, I mean, I just had a, a call with probably three or four superintendents uh, on Tuesday morning, and they were talking about some of the unique political challenges that have been they've experienced in a way that they've never experienced in their entire 20, 30 year career. Right. And so that's real for everywhere. And then you just, you didn't even touch on that. And so my question is, as you kind of went down that path, how much of your time in a week are you spending with community organizations that are outside of your district to talk mm -hmm. about how do we solve these problems together quickly? That, and that ebb, ebbs and flows as well. You know, the pandemic sort of shut all, a lot of that down. So we're just sort of getting back into some of those rhythms. But I, this morning I had a meeting with a municipality in our district that has some, some growth. They are experiencing some growth. They've got some new schools, some renovated schools, and we're trying to work collaboratively on a, a school project. And, and how do we make sure that we are taking into account what the municipality's needs are while in the context of the school system's needs? Um, because we are not a municipal district. We have 12 municipalities in the in Wake County, and we have to work with all of them. So wow. town managers, um, you know, mayors and elected officials, um, we have to we have to have those meetings and have that time to coalesce around common goals and objectives and figuring out roles and responsibilities and how we work together, because I am I am really committed to ensuring that every single one of our schools, wherever they may be located, is a best choice and first choice for families in that community. Yep. Um, and that can be hard depending on what you're faced with at that time. 
one of the questions I have for all superintendents, definitely one that of your size, I mean, every, you know, I'm sure you like to free up your leaders to choose the right initiatives for their buildings, but there are certain initiatives. I'm sure you guys have had to go district wide when you have one, let's not even make sure I've made something. Do you have initiatives that have to go district wide and two, what are the keys to successful implementation and rollout for 160,000 students, or in your case, 20,000 uh, staff? So the, um, we do have some things that do happen district-wide. A lot of times they are things that are dictated by the state of North Carolina. Mm. Um, our, our biggest district-wide implementation right now is in elementary schools around the science of reading training. That's, you know, those kinds of sort of a thing all over the country, quite frankly. Yep. But the state of North Carolina has adopted it and is requiring that every single one of our elementary school teachers be trained in it. And we started that training last year. <laughs> it will continue through this school year. It is a heavy lift. It is time consuming. It is a lot of work. And so um, I would say to you that the, 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 the work of how important the compelling why is on the front end of any district or statewide initiative, and this has to happen at the school level as well. Why are we doing this? What is our data? What is our problem? What is our need that demonstrates that this is what we need to apply at this point in time? I think understanding who was engaged and consulted as a part of determining the resolution is important. Um, I am not a fan of things coming down from central office that did not engage principals and teachers in the front end uh, with regards to what the options, solutions, or path might be. And that is hard, but I can't tell you that, I have to tell you that I ask that question every time something comes up, a policy change, a curriculum need. I'm like, who, what teachers or principals have we spoken to? And so our folks are, you know, they're learning for sure that that needs to happen on the front end. Um, and sometimes we get it right more than others. Um, but I think in addition to consulting with teachers and principals and those most impacted, I think sometimes what we forget to do is understand that as a part of the consultation, we have to be explicit about building their capacity to then carry that message beyond the meeting that they were in where they were consulted to what is your role after the meeting. So we are a big fan of having our principals and our teachers speak to things that are happening in their buildings when they speak to our stakeholder groups or to our board, as opposed to central services staff speaking to it. Uh, they need to hear from the folks that are implementing, whether it's good or bad. Um, so I think we need to be explicit about when we're trying to build alignment, saying to folks, your role is now to take this message back to the rest of the teachers in your building and get feedback from them and let us know, as opposed to only, you know, feedback is not one way. It's got to be two way. Um, consulting is not one way. It has to be two way. And so I can bring in teachers and principals, but if I don't equip them to go out with a message and a, a role and responsibility, then that stayed in that small group and that doesn't work. So um, that's important. To your point, I think about, you know, you've had some exposure to our work when, when I have folks call me saying, you know, we're just not getting the same results we've been looking for. Most of the time, you know, I look in the mirror with ourselves and our team before I remember looking at the school and it can all almost always be traced back to how well was the conversation before starting any training on understanding what they're doing, what they're about, the why, all the stuff that you just talked about. And if you miss those steps, if you go too fast, it's a coin flip whether something's going to work or not. But if you hit those steps well, I mean, you've got real strong predictability in terms of impact. Yeah. So I have a 
few years back, we had a, a couple of gentlemen join our team for a few years that were part of the Harvard Strategic Data Project. Mm. And so they joined our data research and accountability team. And when they left the district, they gifted me a, a quote um, that I use all the time. And I think it maybe comes from Coos and Posner um, that's, that states, rarely can you fix by analysis what you bungled in design. And so the issue here is when you build that compelling why, what's the data, what's the research, what's the problem we're trying to solve? You need to at the same time also build the pathway, the progress monitoring, the checkpoints and have a goal that gets progress monitored. I, I truly believe the reason that so much gets piled on teachers and schools plates is because we don't really know what's working. So we don't know what to take off. Um, and that is, really having a strategic lens around how you do the work. And so I ask our folks those questions all the time. Why are we doing this? What's the data? Who have we consulted? How are we gonna progress monitor? What's the goal? And then how long are we giving it? And when will, you know, what are we not gonna do? Um, and, and that can be really hard because when you have 198 schools, we have 10,000 teachers that are sometimes choosing resources, materials, and things on their own that they become used to, that they like, that fit their needs, but it wasn't necessarily something that was chosen for all 10,000. And right. so that it's, it is an ongoing process. I bet. Um, when you think about that, hence a little bit of my next question about climate and culture, every, every organization, school organization seems to be focused on climate and culture uh, now. How, how do you all measure this? And what are you guys doing to attack at climate and culture in your buildings? Well, we have a couple of different tools that are part of this work, but um, North Carolina has a teacher working condition survey that's deployed every two years. Um, and those results are sent back to schools at the school level. Um, and there are some requirements around the evaluation process for building level administrators for how they engage with the results of that survey and what they're doing to improve. Um, whatever those results may be in their schools and address the concerns that are expressed by staff in those surveys. Mm -hmm. We also do a district-wide teacher survey that asks some more explicit questions that are not as broad about what their experience has been in a classroom. We've ramped up our exit surveys for teachers who leave the profession to try to get feedback on that end, even on the way out. Um, and one of our areas of focus right now really is what our onboarding looks like. How do we provide teachers and staff that coming into the district with the information they need to understand about what our priorities are, how our work is focused, what the tools are and resources that we provide that support them. Um, but the, really the most important thing is creating an atmosphere where feedback, critical feedback, is welcomed and acted upon. You know, when we have a meeting and we provide principals, for example, with an opportunity to provide plus delta type feedback on the different sessions during the day or their experience, we, that can't be a one-way street either. They have to see that we do something with that feedback. So, um, so I think it's just really important to not only be open to it and create a culture, but to create a culture of accountability for what you do with the feedback. Yeah, I think one of the things you said there was uh, I remember during the turnaround phase of looking at schools that were on those failing lists across the country, um, there was some data, some national analysis that showed uh, like 98%, now maybe 97% of teachers get uh, their end of year feedback that says like satisfactory or above. 
and yet the school is failing in terms of academic performance. And so what that makes, it made, it made it tough for those school leaders to then learn that data and then figure out a way to say, you guys aren't doing your job at the highest level when they're getting satisfactory or above satisfactory results, uh, according to the, their measurement. Have you guys ever run into that problem and how do you tackle that? Yeah, so um, that's a really complicated question because there are some underlying assumptions mm. that you have to deal with on the front end. Like yeah. do, and you, you, know, you did it yourself as you were asking the question, do the assessments actually measure what's important? Right. <laughs> so if, if the assessments, if there's a problem with the assessments, then there's going to be a, a problem all the way through. And right. so, you know, what I've, what I've tried to work with with our schools is to understand what are the multiple data points that you're using to determine what's happening with your culture, what's happening with your academics, what your needs are, and it has to be multiple data points. Certainly standardized test results are a part of that, yep. but we also all agree, and we have a board that pretty much understands and agrees that, that, that a test result for a test given on one day out of the 170, 80 days that a kid is in school, can't possibly begin to tell you everything you need to know about the experience of that student or the work of that teacher for that student. I think everybody can agree to that. And, and sort of what I've added to it is, but it doesn't mean they don't tell you something now. It doesn't mean yeah. those results don't tell you something. So we try to really balance what we want to look at in terms of multiple measures. And, you know, the last couple of years has been incredibly difficult on our schools and our school communities. And, you know, we had a year where no tests were given. So there's no data for that year. And then you come back the next year and the data only represented about 75% of our students even testing because some of them stayed virtual and wouldn't come back in the building. Um, and so this, the end of this school year really is the first one that we will have that is even close to being able to be compared to prior years, which creates gaps, right? And yeah. so um, I think that it's really about looking at the multiple measures that you want to identify that tell you the things that you need to know about what's happening in your school. Um, and I think that, um, you know, being marked satisfactory as a teacher in terms of your performance is not the same as understanding where your growth opportunities are as an educator. And I think that we have to build that culture also, where even someone who got outstanding on all of their areas doesn't mean that there are not opportunities for growth. And I think that's where we have to build both a culture and a climate that understands that, respects that, and works towards it. There's that's always room for improvement. That's a phenomenal answer. I would say, you know, my wife and I uh, are interesting. I've worked in traditional districts my whole career, and my wife works uh, as a chief of staff for KIPP charter schools in St. Louis. And, you know, we go back and forth on our plenty of debates on like philosophy of education. But one thing I do love about that, what they have implemented there is it's all about a growth mindset and all about every teacher in there is thinking, what are my gaps and how do I get better? That's just like who they hire to your point. That's how they onboard. And then that's how they develop throughout the year. So you're never uh, thinking with a deficit mindset of like, oh, they're just coming after me. It's like, no, no, no. We assume you're great. You're here. And now let's get better. All of us. Right. Um, exactly. So that was really refreshing to hear from you. Um, real quick, before I get to the last uh, rapid fire questions that we close every podcast with, what's your vision for the future? I'm sure your community knows, but I'm curious, uh, for those folks who have not had no, no context for Wake County, where are you trying to take it and where is your team going? So I'll, I'll, I'll um, 
first just sort of parrot what's in our vision and mission statements, right? So we, we basically say that all of our students will be prepared to reach their full potential and lead productive lives in a complex and changing world. We also say that we're gonna provide a relevant and engaging education and we'll graduate students who are collaborative, creative, effective communicators and critical thinkers. All of that comes from understanding that learning is a lifelong process and it's a different pathway for all. And while the rote memorization, facts, formulas, content level knowledge is important, and it really is about the skills that we build in our students to continue to learn after they leave us and to be productive after they leave us. And um, that involves not just what we put into them as educators, but also how we build their capacity and their agency as learners. And so we, we want to balance all of those things. We want our kids to be successful when they're with us and to have the tools and skills necessary to be successful after they leave us wherever their pathways may lead. Um, and that, that language, that work that I just talked about that's in our strategic plan came from working with our community stakeholder groups with colleges, universities, community colleges, businesses, um, parents, uh, faith-based community, all of these stakeholder groups that when we ask them, what do our kids need when they leave us? What do you need from them? And so, it, it, it really is about building their capacity and their agency to be productive when they leave us by, by skills that are really hard to measure on a standardized test, um, but are definitely, they come up time and time again, you know, being critical thinkers, being collaborative, being creative, being problem solvers. How do they, how do they, how do we build those skills when they leave us? So those are areas that we focus on in our classroom as, a diff, as additional multiple measures, like I talked to you about earlier. So you've just given me chills in a way that you probably didn't expect and I didn't expect. But if I look at the theme of everything we've just talked about, we started off early talking about um, how you have to jump in with both hands and both feet with everything you do in education, right? Like you got to do that job and do it well. And I feel your same focus and resolve with every question. The job of a superintendent, whether it's a three school district or, you know, 500 school district, you get pulled in the community, you get pulled in all the different directions your presence, being present here with us is, feels really good and focused. I assume this is how you are in every meeting. What <laughs> systems do you have around you to make sure that the follow-up is happening off your expectations that you set for, you know, you're in a, a partnership meeting with outside organizations and you set some expectations there, but then you got to go to, you know, uh, something for implementation at uh, elementary school. How, how do you make sure that the system of follow-up people are meeting expectations? So, um, you know, one of the ways we, we, we know whether or not we're hitting the mark is the feedback that we get after we're, we're doing some work. But I think on the front end, as you're planning, um, you've heard me use these terms a little bit earlier. I talk a lot about ownership and alignment, about shared understanding. So how, when, when we tackle something, one of the things that we ask our folks to do, and th this comes through a process of working together that actually has a name that we've trained on. It's called the Collaborative Operating System, COS. Um, and what it requires is that we develop shared understanding, that we develop ownership and alignment on the front end, that we intentionally have cross-sectional, departmental, what we call rings of involvement that develop 
a, a problem statement. What's the problem we're trying to solve? And that start with that collaborative from different divisions and departments and stakeholder groups on the front end with helping to resolve that problem. Our job as leadership is to give a clear and explicit charge to a group that's gonna to work together to solve a problem. And we know we've done that well when the group comes to us with a solution or a structure that meets those expectations so that we can develop the trust that is necessary to allow people to do their work because they have that ownership and alignment on the front end. When something is brought to us that doesn't match those expectations or doesn't fit, then we have to look back at ourselves to say, what explicit direction did we provide? Did we not provide explicit direction? What are we missing? Um, because at the end of the day, like I said, the magic, the work doesn't happen in the superintendent's office. It happens in 10,000 classrooms and hundreds of offices across this district. So how am I building that shared understanding so that we can have ownership and alignment and be on the same page around our work? And when we don't, how do we course correct? And really it is about respecting each other's work and understanding each other's work so that we can have the trust that's necessary for both autonomy in our work so that we have a sense of self-satisfaction in what we do, but alignment so that we are looking at the priorities of the district and moving forward together. Yeah. So before I get to our closeout questions, I'm going to ask you again, because you answered it earlier and I just want to keep coming back to it. What do you love about what you do right now? I, I love you know, I feel like I'm an arbiter of hope in many ways, but that hope has to be strategic and, then it's, and it has to be guided by specific resources, support and intent. And so, you know, what I love about every day is the possibility that exists in all of the work that we do. And when we are focused on kids, focused on schools, focused on teachers, focused on the communities that we need to be a part of our support mechanism and the stakeholder groups that have to believe in the work that we're doing. Um, you know, I'm all about that possibility. We don't always get it right. We do stumble. We have a lack of alignment sometimes, a lack of understanding sometimes. But I am all in for doing the work that helps address that and create that alignment. On the, you know, I, I want folks to understand when something doesn't happen the way they want to. You know, I want folks to be empowered with information um, to not be at a crossroads and not understand where to go next. They may not like the answer. They may not like the solution, but I want them to understand why it is. And so uh, for me, you know, that possibility, it drives me every day. That's great. Build understanding. All right. We're going to get you out of here on time. So our closeout questions are what habit or discipline do you use every day or on a weekly basis that helps you make the best version of yourself? So you, you can show up to be the best version of yourself every day. So, so contrary to the to point of the podcast, it is to listen more than I speak, <laughs> right? Well, so you're the guest uh, here, so you have to speak here, but keep going. So Sorry. I really, for me, it's really about listening. Um, it is something I practice on a regular basis is to listen and discern what is this person's question, problem, need? What are they trying to do? And how can I support them? Or how can we build understanding so that we can support each other in that work? It's really about listening. And then- well, communicating effectively on the other side. Well, I, I hope if people were listening to your answers, like I was, I would not assume you weren't a listener because when you go back to the time when you're a teacher and you had a teacher's aid, you said, I had to go learn to figure out what we could do more. I got to, I got to use my time and talent somehow. So that showed me that you're already a curious person. And so I don't think that just happens. A lot of folks would be like, well, 
can hang out a little bit. You're going down to the office to figure out how you can help. And so that's not an accident, I would say. Um, what book or books have you read? And it could be podcasts as well, um, that you've listened to that have made a big impact on your life, either over your life or recently that you think other people need to check out. So, um, one that's several years old now, but came at a time right when I was sort of transitioning into a deputy superintendent role and then superintendent role, um, really is, um, Carol Dweck's work on growth mindset. Um, that was, that came at a really critical time as we were looking at, you know, stagnant achievement gaps and things that really aren't working and understanding. And, and that work happened at the same time that we did some work around cultural proficiency and understanding who our students are and instigating and starting up an office of equity affairs in the district. So all of that sort of coalesces to me again, around that notion of possibility and hope and how do we build our own capacity and those of others to understand the gifts and talents that every child brings to the classroom and how we respect them and how we leverage them to build their agency and capacity. Mm, yeah, that's a book that has been really cool. Cause I, it's, whether you're an educator or non-educator, I feel like people, it just really hits you. Uh, hard and changes your mindset. Uh, no, no pun intended on how you should approach your life. Uh, I've read that a couple of times, my wife, and we've loved it. Uh, all right. Playlists. Uh, one of the questions that I have, there's a Jeffrey Canada, who's someone that I've always looked up to. We had him on a podcast and a friend of mine just said, I'm, I'm curious, what does Jeffrey Canada listen to? And I'm like, all right, I'll ask. And we've kept it. And so feel free. We've had people say, I'm a sports talk radio junkie. I'm an NPR junkie to, I don't listen to anything all works, but I always ask the question when you're driving somewhere stuck in traffic in the Raleigh area, maybe walking, running, what kind of music songs, artists are on your playlist? So, um, I'm a big fan of 80s Southern rock. Oh. Um, I also am a big fan of Motown. Um, so both of those are things that I'd love to listen to and sing along as long as nobody can listen to me. Um, and then um, I also am a really big fan of, of um, Selena, who is a, an American Mexican artist, and then some other folks that go along with that, you know, like um, uh, you wouldn't recognize these people necessarily, but Thalia, um, there's just Spanish artists that I also yeah, yeah. listen to as well that I'm really connected to. And so for me, um, music is, is important. And, you know, I, I listen to stuff nowadays also, you know, I, I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a fan of some current artists as well, but music is really important to me in terms of getting me settled and, and getting me in a, in, in sort of a, you know, a, a nice good mood to do anything. And I really think that comes from my, my Hispanic heritage and background where music was central to everything that we did. Yeah. Well, that's why I love that my friend encouraged me to ask the question because I've like, I, I wouldn't know, I wouldn't have a clue what you listen to or not. And, you know, uh, on another podcast, I assume this, I assume I could probably fix pick the person's playlist out. And he's like, I try not to listen to anything right now. I'm like, okay, sounds great. Uh, last question. I'll let you have your day back. Uh, you're around lots of great leaders and thought leaders all the time. Um, inspirational folks. What's the best piece of leadership advice or change advice you've come across recently that you just can't get out of your head and you want to share with people? So, um, we have an educational leader in the state of North Carolina who I have listened to for many years that I respect tremendously. His name is Dr. Dudley Flood. And um, Dr. Flood, uh, a few years ago, I heard him speak 
And we were, and he was speaking at the Color of Education Conference in North Carolina, which is really about understanding the equity issues that we have in our districts and how we address them and how we build capacity. Lots of speakers come and that sort of thing. And he was accepting some sort of a recognition. And one of the things that he said that I think about on a daily basis is that it is not until each one of us as individuals works with individual students in the same capacity that we would if they were our own child, that we will make a dent in what we see in achievement gaps and proficiency gaps um, across this country. Mm. That we have to work with each child as if they were our own child. What do we want for our own child? And how do we work for our own child? And I, and I think about, and that's kind of where the, how do you work? How do you meet the needs of 160,000 students? One kid at a time. I love it. Well, we're going to end about 30 seconds uh, for you to go to your next meeting. Kathy, this was awesome. Thank you for making time for us. It was very refreshing and I'm confident people will walk away with action steps that how to improve. So thank you. I, I appreciate the invitation and the opportunity to share. Yeah, have a great day, okay? You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Please support us by subscribing to our YouTube channel, uh, podcast on Apple or Spotify, and help us celebrate the beautiful, messy work of shaping human potential.